the American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4, The Railroads. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. As always, thank you for listening. Um, please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You go there and you can sign up for the email list. If you're into the social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter, at American HisCast. Uh, let me just thank all the Patreons that we have. Every little bit helps, and your support is definitely appreciated. If you would like to join the Patreon and get access to our special Patreon-only series 1983 the year the world almost ended you can go to patreon the link is on our website um so once again i appreciate everybody who's joined patreon even if you only join up for a month and then you quit every little bit helps cover the cost of things like books and the website and hosting and all that stuff so thank you again very much all right so today we have a very interesting topic one that i think you're going to find fascinating at least i hope you will and that is the railroads and railroad building in the second period of the American Industrial Revolution. Now, this is an important period when it comes to understanding the politics and the economics of the late 19th and early 20th century. So I'll just shut up and we'll get started. However, before we get started, our song of the week, it's back. And it is The Freedom Train by the Pied Pipers. It's a famous old song from yesteryear. So we'll see you on the other side. the Atchison, Topeka, not the Chattanooga choo-choo, nor the one that leaves at midnight for the state of Alabama. This song is a train song where the engineer is Uncle Sam. Here comes the freedom train, you better hurry down, just like a Paul Revere, it's coming into your hometown. Inside the freedom train, you'll find a precious freight. Those words of liberty, the documents that made us great. You can shout your anger from a steeple. You can shoot the system full of holes. You can always question we the people. Okay, so first of all, railroad building. This was big business in the 19th century, but even more so in the years after the American Civil War. Now, by 1900, there was a total of 192,556 miles of track that had been built in the United States, more than all of Europe combined. Yeah, that's a huge amount of track. Now, part of what happens, part of the motivator for all of the building that that took place um, was that the U.S. government had subsidized transcontinental railroad building during this latter part of the 19th century. This was because, or so the argument went, that it was unprofitable for companies to do so, and thus they wouldn't do so. However, what are those companies supposed to do with unprofitable lines? They're going to be running half-full trains on these lines, or worse, and they're going to be losing money. 
Okay, part of what happened was that in an effort to compensate the companies for these profit-losing ventures, the government compensated them by giving them approximately 155 million acres of land that lay along the rail lines. Basically, this was in a checkerboard pattern of alternating one-square-mile sections. The government, in return, was guaranteed low rates for postal service and military traffic. One side effect of all of this is that towns sprung up where the tracks were laid, while towns which had predated the railroad would, in some cases, become ghost towns. Another side effect is that some historians argue the building of railroads sparked the second phase of the American Industrial Revolution. Now, this is due to the fact that coal and steel industries received a huge boost, or so the story goes, by the increase in demand for their products that was caused by the building of the railroads. However, my problem with this is that the spike this caused was short-lived. Remember, the Transcontinental Railroad was built by 1869. I'm sure other trunk lines would be built, but I'm not sure that this was enough of a boost long-term to mean railroad building deserves the credit for the second phase of the Industrial Revolution. Alright, so how did all of this get started? First, you had the original Transcontinental Railroad. Now, this line stretched about 1,900 miles and connected the Eastern United States Rail Network at Council Bluffs, Iowa, with the Pacific Coast at San Francisco Bay. Now, the idea for a line which would connect the two coasts was proposed as early as 1847, when one Dr. Hartwell Carver submitted to the U.S. Congress a proposal for a charter to build a railroad from Lake Michigan to the Pacific Ocean. Now, there were originally three proposed routes— a northern route through modern-day Montana to Oregon Territory, a central route from Nebraska to modern-day Wyoming, following most of the Oregon Trail, and then finally a southern route across Texas, New Mexico Territory, and on to Los Angeles. Now, this route was discovered by surveyors in 1848 and was a bit more problematic, as the best way lay in what was at that time part of Mexico. Thus, in 1853, the United States completed the Gadsden Purchase that was agreed to in the Treaty of Mesilla. This treaty called for the United States to purchase 29,000 square miles of land south of the Gila River and west of the Rio Grande for $10 million, a sum of money which the cash-strapped Mexican government desperately needed thanks to its recent war with the United States. Now, in 1862, the U.S. Congress passed the Pacific Railway Act. This was passed by the Republican Congress during the Civil War ostensibly with the reasoning that the railroad was urgently needed due to national security concerns. Now, the line, moving west from the east, which started Council Bluffs, did not get started, however, until July of 1865, by which time the war had been over for several months. Now, this work was being done by the Union Pacific Railroad, which was granted 20 square miles for each mile of track constructed. The company was also granted federal loans for each mile, $16,000 for flatland, $32,000 over hilly, hilly country, and $48,000 for mountainous country. So the company was incentivized to build the railroad both winding and over difficult terrain. Now, as for the actual workers, the Union Pacific used Irish immigrants and former slaves to build the road. If you've seen the AMC show Hell on Wheels, you realize just how hard the job was. Workers had to work at a frantic pace while, at the same time, fending off attacks from hostile Indians. Scores of workers lost their lives in this endeavor. I should also note, they built the railroad without the use of mechanized tools. As for the aforementioned Hell on Wheels, that was actually a name for the tent towns that sprung up at the rail's end. They were infamous for drinking, and prostitution was rampant as well. 
Now, I'm sure you know, corruption was flagrant, especially on the Union Pacific side. Insiders working for the construction company known as Credit Mobilier pocketed $73 million for having completed approximately $50 million of work. They bribed members of Congress to look the other way while they did this, which is also depicted in the show that I mentioned a moment ago. If you've never seen it, I would recommend it. Obviously, it's a fictionalized account of this experience, but it's entertaining and it's worth your time. Now, as for the part of the line which started in California, it was being constructed by the Central Pacific Railroad. You may not realize it, but they were building the line from west to east and from east to west at the same time. The plan was to meet in the middle. The Central Pacific pushed east from Sacramento over the Sierra Nevada Mountains, led by four talented businessmen, including Leland Stanford, a former governor of California, future U.S. senator, and the founder of Stanford University. This railroad had an extremely difficult task. It had to go over, and sometimes through, the mountains, which were mostly granite. So work was extremely slow. The CPR was provided the same subsidies as the Union Pacific. However, while the latter mostly used Irish and African-American workers, the Central Pacific used 10,000 Chinese laborers. Again, hundreds of workers lost their lives, but here it was often due to the premature explosions as they blasted their way through the mountains. The going was so slow that at one point, they were moving forward at the rate of just a few inches a day. Now, the railroad was completed when they met at Promontory Point, Utah, on May 10, 1869. The Union Pacific had built 1,086 miles of line, and the Central Pacific had built 689 miles. The significance of this is that the entire continent was now linked via railroad and telegraph lines. This also helped to pave the way for the incredible growth of the West. It helped to facilitate a growing trade with Asia, and it was seen by Americans at the time as a monumental achievement akin to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm not sure they were not in, that they were incorrect on that assessment. I mean, when you think about it, what these people built, and to have done it with mechanic, without mechanical tools, it's simply amazing. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there were plans for putting the Transcontinental Railroad in other places, and eventually those lines would also be built. The difference is that the U.S. government learned its lesson, and none of these subsequent railroad lines received government loans. However, they did get generous land grants. I should note these grants of land were then sold off by the railroads to help raise money and offset the expenses of building the line. Now, the Northern Pacific Railroad was completed in 1883, and it ran from Lake Superior to Seattle. Another major railroad was the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, which was completed in 1884. It connected those cities through the southwestern deserts to California. The Southern Pacific, which ran from New Orleans to San Francisco through Los Angeles, was also completed in 1884. Finally, the Great Northern Railroad, running from Duluth, Minnesota to Seattle, was finished in 1893. This railroad was a model of efficiency as it was a privately funded transcontinental railroad. Unlike all of the other lines, it received no federal subsidies. None whatsoever. Now, some argue that it was the only one, and thus an outlier. I would argue it was successfully funded via private funds because it needed to be, and because the demand, which wasn't there for the others, was there for this one. What I mean by this is that, unlike the other lines, this one was built in stages and slowly, so it had profitable lines before moving further into undeveloped territory. So why the difference? James G. Hill, the man behind the Great Northern, was the difference. 
He believed that prosperity of the railroad was based on the prosperity of the area it served. Thus, his lines connected to the iron mining fields of Minnesota and the copper mining areas of Montana. Now, further, he ran agricultural demonstration trains along his lines, and he even imported bulls from England to distribute to farmers who lived along the route. By improving their conditions, he improved the performance of his railroad. Now, speaking of famous names associated with railroads, I don't think there is any name that is more famous than Cornelius Vanderbilt. He lived from 1794 through 1877, and is sometimes referred to as, the, as a robber baron, although I think that's an exaggeration of epic proportions, as I'll discuss in a moment. Anyway, Vanderbilt popularized the use of steel rails, and when he took over the New York Central Railroad, he replaced the old iron tracks with steel. It was safer and it was more economical, since it could carry a heavier load. Now part of the problem, I believe, is that the Commodore, as he was called, nearly had a monopoly on the railroad traffic in the eastern U.S. He amassed a fortune of about $100 million, which is just astonishing. If we account for inflation, his wealth would be something like, oh, about $200 billion in today's money. And he's probably the second wealthiest person in American history after only John D. Rockefeller. Now, furthermore, railroad tycoons became extremely powerful by the end of the 19th century. Just think of someone like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos today. Back in the 19th century, these men were said to have bribed judges and legislatures, employed lobbyists effectively, and even had their own men elected to office. So let's break this down a little bit. First, and this is just a question, but why do we condemn the businessmen, but not the politicians who are accepting the bribes? Secondly, as far as lobbyists are concerned, what was he supposed to do, hire an effective lobbyist? I mean, seriously. And finally, getting their own people elected to office might seem shady at best, but it's not surprising. Were these people the first to do this? I'm not discounting the idea that there was corruption, but it was, what I'm asking is, was it any worse than the corruption in, say, 1820, 1800? 1860? In some cases, they were uh, these people were accused of, God forbid, giving free passes to journalists and politicians. Shocking, I know. And finally, one of the major criticisms I've seen is that Vanderbilt, as one example, squashed his opponents economically rather than using the political system or the legal system to destroy them. But again, why is this a problem? Why is it better if he used the legal system to destroy his uh, opposition instead of destroying them economically. Now, some of the things you've never heard about the Commodore is how he helped the poor. What do I mean by this? Well, on his steamships, and if you didn't know it, he was first known for making a fortune running a steamship line. He undercut the competition's prices. How did he do this and remain profitable? He figured out that if he sold concessions on board his ships, he'd make far more money than he did from charging for a ride. Thus, he cut his prices down and instead, he charged for food and drinks and stuff like that. So, what was the significance of America's rail network? First, as I mentioned before, some argue that it spurred the industrialization of the post-Civil War years. Second, it united the continent physically. Third, it created a huge domestic market for U.S. raw materials and manufactured goods. It was, perhaps, the largest integrated market in the world. It stimulated the creation of three Western economic industries— the mining industry, the agriculture, and ranching. Fifth, it led to a great exodus from the cities uh, to the cities from the rural areas starting in the late 19th century. Sixth, it facilitated a large influx of immigrants, thanks largely to the fact that railroads advertised in Europe, 
that they would pay for immigrants to travel to new farms in the American West. Seventh, it spurred investment in the United States from abroad. Eighth, it led to the creation of distinct time zones from coast to coast. Ninth, it created a new class of millionaires, and a new railroad aristocracy emerged. And finally, Native Americans were displaced and herded into ever-shrinking reservations. Okay, while some might argue that the 19th century was a time of unregulated business, especially in railroads, they couldn't be more wrong. Initially, government might have been slow to react to the growth of railroads, but it did get in the game. Now, why was there a lag time? Well, first you have to remember, the ideals of Jeffersonian and Jacksonian America were hostile to government interference with business. Americans were dedicated to laissez-faire, or free market economics, and to the idea that competition fuels trade, and it was this competition which benefited the consumer. However, in the 1870s, um, depression in the agricultural sector led farmers to complain about the fact that they were being forced into bankruptcy by unfair railroad policies. We'll talk more about this in a future episode, but for now, I'll say the farmers organized themselves into groups such as the Grange, aka the Patrons of Husbandry, that pressured many Midwestern state legislatures into regulating the railroads in a way that benefited farmers. A second aspect of, to the burgeoning rail, regulation of railroads was the so-called slaughterhouse cases of 1873. They molded the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment for the next few decades. Here, the court ruled that protection of labor was not the responsibility of the federal government under the 14th Amendment. Thus, it fell to the states. The significance of this was that it protected business from federal regulation if they were engaged in only intrastate commerce, that is to say, commerce within a particular state. Now before we go on, I should say something about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, um, but it is one of the most litigated parts of the Constitution as it has played a part in decisions such as Brown v. Board of Education in the 1950s and more recently Bush v. Gore. Now, it has several important clauses, and I'm just going to mention them briefly. First is the Citizenship Clause. This overturned the Supreme Court case known as Dred Scott, which said that black people who were uh, slaves when that case was ruled on were not citizens and could not become citizens. And the part of the case which matters to us is the fact that the court said the state of Louisiana could use its police powers to regulate butchers. The court said the 14th Amendment only applied to the rights of U.S. citizenship, in other words, those rights whose existence was thanks to the existence of the federal or the general government. As historian Kevin Gutzman argues, this is the historically correct interpretation. The 14th Amendment was only meant to protect those rights which are specifically federal rights. Remember, the United States is a federation, and federal courts, even in the 19th century, still upheld the idea that federal courts were not always a censor upon the legislation in the states. So when it comes to business, if that business was conducted within one state, such as a butcher shop, it was immune from federal regulation, but not state and local ones. Now, there's an, uh, there was another case that's important, and that's the case of uh, Munn v. Illinois, 1877. Here, this, uh, this, the court upheld one of the pro-farmer Granger laws, something which I'm sure we're going to look at in more depth in a future episode. The court said the public always has a right to regulate business operations in which it, the public, has an interest. It ended up ruling against the railroads in this case. Now, interestingly enough, if you're not confused yet, we get the Wabash case in 1886. 
Now here, just a little under a decade after Munn, the court ruled that the individual states could not regulate interstate commerce as that responsibility lay with the federal government. Thus, it effectively nullified the Munn decision and caused an outcry for the federal government to step in and clarify the matter. However, I think the matter was pretty clear. The original meaning of the Constitution was that the general government was not supposed to regulate the economy or companies in the way that you and I think of. Um, they were there to simply make commerce flow regularly, to grease the wheels, so to speak. The meaning of the document cannot be changed simply to benefit one group. Remember, the Constitution is not, no matter what Hillary Clinton might have said, a living, breathing document. It means the same thing in 1888 that it meant in 1848 and in 1798. If changes are needed, you don't reinterpret it. You amend it. To rely on the former is to render the document and the uh, protections that it offers dead. Okay, so hopefully we're not too confused yet. This brings us to the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887. This was the first large-scale legislation passed by the federal government to regulate corporations in the interest of society. It became the blueprint for future regulatory commissions in the 20th century. And so the question is, what does it do? Well, it sets up the ICC, or the Interstate Commerce Commission, its most important provision to enforce and administer the act. It prohibited rebates and pools and required railroads to publish their rates openly. It forbade unfair discrimination against shippers and outlawed charging more for a short haul rather than long haul over the same line. Some would argue that a positive result that came out of this was that it, prov uh, that it provided an orderly forum where competing business interests would resolve conflicts in peaceful ways. Yet, in reality, it did little to effectively regulate the railroads, as it was far uh, more of a panacea to placate the public. As I've often argued, these government bodies, more often than not, do not end up helping out the so-called little man. Instead, what they do, they end up as a tool of the powers that be, in this case big business, to help maintain the status quo. Okay, so that's all for today. I think you can see that by the 1890s, the United States had changed when it came to ideas about the power and the scope of the federal government and how much it should be involved in the affairs of business. The topic of our next episode will be the rise of labor and the myth of the robber barons. We're going to get into that topic much more um, than what we did here today, as I want to destroy that myth. So, until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.